welcome to FSI, Financial Services Innovators, the private community brought to you by Praxent, where we explore all things technology and innovation in the field of fintech. I'm Tim Hamilton, founder and CEO of Praxent. Now, for today's spotlight, please join me in welcoming Jeff Horvath, CEO and co-founder of Digiply. Jeff and I will be speaking about the challenges fintechs face relating to compliance and the various ways they can fill the gap. Jeff, thanks so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me, Tim. Glad to be here. Well, to kick things off, tell us a little bit about what Digiply does, the problem it solves, and for whom. Sure. So Digiply refers to digital compliance, and we help fintechs onboard new customers quickly and efficiently and in full compliance with the any money laundering laws with our product called Onboarding as a Service. And that's a highly automated and configurable SaaS product that comes integrated with all the tools, data, and products you need to run and launch a fintech from an AML perspective. Plus, we bundle it with ongoing support from our anti-money laundering experts. And they can provide the day-to-day help needed to make everything run as smoothly and seamlessly as possible. And in terms of customers, our ideal customers are new and growing fintechs like payment companies, cryptocurrency firms, crowdfunding platforms, online under, online lenders, and neobanks. We're going to get into a discussion about uh, AML and BSA and the very specific areas of compliance that are most challenging for those fintechs. But tell us about the founding story before we do. Sure. Well, there's, there's three of us on the founding team in Digiply, and all of us spent the last 25 plus years working for major financial institutions, either in a legal or compliance or IT capacity. And we saw that the systems and processes there from an AML perspective were a mess. And there are clearly better ways to do things. And the problem though, that these big firms were so mired in their legacy processes, they couldn't get out of their own way. And with the rise of fintechs and how much the fintechs are taking market away from the big players, to be honest, we saw an opportunity to ditch Wall Street and do something a little bit more fun and interesting. And we really wanted to become part of this growing financial ecosystem and take the experiences we've built up over the last few decades and deploy them to help fintechs avoid some of the mistakes and issues and problems that are, are haunting banks to this day. And that led to the, the launch of Digiply about three years ago. Oh, how exciting. Uh, well, congratulations. It's been, it's been fun to watch the progress that y'all have been making in the market. Tell us, Jeff, at a high level, what are some of those regulatory requirements that uh, a B2C in particular, a B2C fintech faces when they're offering a banking-focused value proposition? Sure. And I would almost take a step back and you know, differentiate fintechs that are partnering with banks. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that later versus fintechs that are actually operating as a regulated entity. But let's look at the fintechs that are partnering with banks and delivering that value proposition to a consumer. The fintech itself might not be necessarily subject to all that many regulations. But the bank is under enormous regulatory pressure, enormous regulatory scrutiny, many, many sets of laws, rules, and regulations on a federal and state level to apply to them. 
And what we've been seeing over the past year or two is even though the laws haven't changed that much, banks' risk appetites have changed as fintechs become more and more a significant part of their portfolio. And what banks have been doing is, in effect, in their contracts with the fintechs, mirroring the regulations that are applied to those banks. So in a way, by contract, a lot of these fintechs are becoming regulated in the same way that banks are being regulated. And when it comes to the anti-money laundering laws and the Bank Secrecy Act, that's really focusing on the controls around the onboarding and due diligence for new customers. And once those customers are onboarded, the review of the activity of those customers designed to detect suspicious or anomalous transactions. Well, you just um, articulated two separate categories. The first one was the onboarding um, and the second one was monitoring transactions for susp- suspicious activity. Let's let's go into that first one, the onboarding perspective first. Sure. And this is the one that I would say is applicable to almost every fintech, um, especially in a B2C space. So it's really about understanding that consumer. And the bank's obligations are going to be passed on to the fintech. So you have to look at what the bank's obligations are. Um, They'll be detailed in the contract, but generally it's going to involve verifying the identity through a government ID or some other method of the consumer, making sure the consumer isn't on any sanction lists or terrorist lists or government watch lists, trying to analyze that consumer to see if they have any red flags associated with them. Are they in a country that has a high corruption risk? Are they engaged in products or businesses or activities that might lend themselves more towards potential money laundering activity? And then for those higher risk customers, performing what's called enhanced due diligence, which is basically doing a deeper dive to make sure you really know who they are where the money's coming from and what they're going to do with the account. And that process all takes place before you even start transacting with a customer. And a lot of it takes place behind the scenes so that the customer doesn't even see what's going on there. Um, I, I'd love to hear how quickly uh, each of these categories are evolving uh, from a regulatory perspective. But per- perhaps before we do that, Jeff, tell us a bit about the second category when we're monitoring the transactions. Sure. Well, the monitoring transactions is really around trying to detect anomalous or suspicious activity. So if you consider driving a car, right, you're going onto the highway, the the on-ramp is your onboarding process, and there's a, a set of controls around that. Once you get on the highway, you're subject to various different rules around how fast you can drive, the recklessness of your driving, and so on. So the monitoring component is really looking at transactions and trying to flag those transactions that might look suspicious. So is based on a customer's profile, um, would it be strange for them to send large amounts of money to a particular jurisdiction? Are they sending money back and forth at certain denominations right below some reporting thresholds? Um, Are they sending different types of money or transacting in different ways that might be concealing where this money came from? So it's really about developing the tools to look for these anomalies. Once they pop up, analyzing them, 
and then deciding, is this a suspicious something transaction, uh, in which case there will be a reported requirement either to the bank or maybe a regulator, um, or is it just within the normal parameters, maybe it got tripped up in a flag, but not a big issue, in which case you document your resolution and close it out. So there's a lot of work that goes on in just reviewing those activities, but it's a, it's a key component. Uh, and then there's obviously, once you have onboarded a customer, making sure that in a week, two weeks, two months, what have you, they don't actually get back onto one of those original watch lists you checked. So it's really around maintaining that customer file and the customer data up to date. And reflecting on uh, how how much these regulations change and at what pace, tell us a bit about the evolution uh, of these rules. So the rules started out a long time ago and continued to be layered on with new and new sets of laws and rules. So over the past 50, 60 years, there's been dozens of different sets of requirements which has been labeled on. Um, I would say the most if you will, transformative came right after 9-11 when they passed the Patriot Act because the requirements were much looser prior to 9-11. After that, they really tightened up and imposed a whole new slew of requirements for vetting and doing due diligence on both individuals and entities and the owners of entities. Um, and then it continued to evolve and every, you know, X number of years, you'd see another set of requirements added on to what was existing within the framework. And the most recent one was just about a year ago when it passed, which is the Anti-Money Laundering Act of 2020, which established an additional layer of obligations designed in some ways to modernize the rules, but in other ways to close some of the existing gaps that became more and more obvious over time. As you look ahead, what what are your predictions about the future of AML and BSA? Um, I would see the future continuing the same trends that we've seen over the past 20 years. And that's really a continued ratcheting up of regulation and oversight over the payment industry. And there's really, I would say, two main drivers for this. One is that it was much easier for the regulators to oversee this activity when the vast percentage of it was handled through a handful of large financial institutions. Now, with the thousands of fintechs out there offering different payment solutions, plus major players from a tech space or, say, an online retail space getting involved and also providing financial services, it's really disseminating the provision of these financial services over not just a, a wide range of players, but people who have never actually worked in a regulated industry before or sold regulated products before. So they're not quite sure how well they'll fit into the existing regulatory infrastructure. So that's sort of the one component. The other component, cryptocurrencies. It's been basically a, a political issue. There have been enough ransomware attacks and various crimes in which cryptocurrency has been requested as the payment that it's really gained a lot of attention. The existing rules, to be honest, don't make sense and or won't work 
when it comes to cryptocurrency from a, from a technical perspective. So even if you wanted to try to regulate it in the same fashion, in many cases, it's, it's trying to slam a square peg into a round hole. So I would see a lot of attention on cryptocurrencies. But because of those two trends really focused on the fintechs and this growing ecosystem, that's really going to shift a lot of attention, I think, from what historically has been focusing the banks into these fintech areas. You mentioned a moment ago, Jeff, about the dissemination of these rules across an increasingly fragmented ecosystem of fintechs uh, doing new and different things. Uh, how do the regulations vary from one fintech to another? So good question. And really the first thing to look at is what's the financial service being provided? Are you selling securities? Are you providing investment advice? Are you engaging in cryptocurrencies? Are you sending money overseas? The activity drives the regulatory environment. And depending on your activity, you'll be subjected to a different set of regulators, a different regulatory application process, and a different set of conduct rules. The anti-money laundering laws are pretty consistent regardless of what each of those activities are. There are different instances, practical implications and how you carry them out, but the anti-money laundering laws are going to be pretty similar from one to another. Um, that though really also then will go back to one of the points we discussed earlier, which is, are these firms providing this service on their own or as a regulated entity, or are they partnering with a bank or a sponsor bank who is delivering this product for them, in which case the bank bears the regulatory burden, which they'll shift some of that to the fintech, um, but it's a, a faster and easier approach to take as partnering with a bank rather than sort of going through that process independently. So for a startup fintech, some practical advice may be to really um, prove out your go-to market uh, and, and uh, minimize the, the, the regulatory hurdles as much as you possibly can until you've really uh, proven unit economics and, and are, are ready to scale. And you can achieve that. And we'll talk maybe with uh, talk with you in just a minute about sponsor banks and what those structures might look like. But sponsor a sponsor bank partnership is one key way to achieve that. Absolutely, and that's generally the advice we give people. And that it's very difficult, very time consuming, and very expensive to go through the registration process. You need people with the right skill sets. You need people with the right licenses, and some institutions are well-funded, well-capitalized, and have a lot of money to start out, and great for them. Most of the, the firms we've been talking with are going through that fundraising process first. And if you can deliver that product through partnering with another, it's a much quicker and easier way to demonstrate, as you said, that, that go-to-market strategy and, and to scale, and then look for uh, maybe an independent regulatory path to deliver specifically what, or to achieve what specifically you want to achieve. Let's talk a little bit more about that sponsor bank path. What should fintech founders consider before proceeding with a chosen sponsor bank? Um, there's a number of considerations. Obviously, you know, price and product is, is chief among them. But one of the requirements the bank is going to have is that the fintech implement certain controls 
so that the bank can help manage its own risk. And a lot of times those controls aren't disclosed or discussed until you get pretty far down the contractual path. And I've seen a huge range of, if you will, requirements from different institutions. Some of them very light touch with the, in, the financial institution or the bank owning most of the rec- risk. Um, some of them very, very onerous, very expensive to address and which requires a really costly infrastructure for the fintech to stand up uh, in order to meet those contractual obligations. So one of the advice would be look more broadly at the fine print in a lot of these contracts in terms of what they can apply, actually what, what they will require you to do. Um, but also certain banks, while they might have the technical authorization to do things, from a practical risk-based approach, they've decided not to do it. So for example, some banks have said, full stop, we're not gonna do business with these 25 countries. Um, If you don't figure that out until three months into your negotiation process, and that happens to be one of your, your, your key markets, you're you're have wasted a lot of time. So understanding really what that regulatory posture is up front is, is important. It really seems like it's a function to a degree of the of the bank's risk tolerance and how fintech centered they might be or it might not be, uh, you know, given given that risk tolerance and their overarching business strategy. Yeah, that's right. And there's maybe, I would say, 20 or so banks out there that are very fintech focused. They understand the fintech business model and have products designed to suit it. Others are getting into that space. Others want nothing to do with it because they see it as a, as a high risk activity that they, um, they and their shareholders just don't want don't to have to address. Let's talk about that next. The uh the considerations from the financial institution's point of view, when they're uh, looking at uh, a sponsor bank strategy, for example, as a way of expanding, uh, what are some of the pros and cons from the bank's perspective uh, to expanding in this way? I would say the pro obviously is getting a, a good growing stream of business, modernizing their book of business and generating asset flow and generating assets. So that's sort of obvious a financial um, consideration for them. There comes with it a big downside risk because in a lot of ways, they are going to be ultimately found liable for what the FinTech does. So even if the FinTech is, um, if you will, contractually indemnifying the bank for their activities, um, the bank at the end of the day is going to be on the hook. So they're going to be very cautious in terms of what sort of relationships they allow to happen, the countries that you allow to transact with, the products that you're going to have access to. And I would say you know, from a sponsor bank perspective, they're going to be very cautious in terms of continually looking at that risk profile of the fintech, um, because those of us in the spark startup space know that you know, one of the most popular words is pivot. Um, and if a fintech starts out with strategy ABC, which the bank likes, 
and then pivots to an XYZ strategy, that can completely change the risk profile of that institution. Uh, and that's that's somewhat scary to the banks. Yeah, that is a very nuanced approach to partnerships, one that uh, requires a lot of uh, very, very careful and deliberate risk management. Um, now, tell us, Jeff, about uh, where Digiply fits in and the different ways that a fintech can comply uh, with these regulations. Sure. So in terms of how a fintech can comply with these regulations, I'll, I'll take that one first. It's really one of two options. They can do it themselves or they can find someone else to partner with and, and do it for them or do it with them. So doing it themselves is what we find many fintechs do, largely for cost purposes at the outset. Um, there is a risk associated with that, obviously, the risk of not being aware enough of the regulations, making a misstep, getting something wrong, um, not appreciating a limitation that you might be subject to. And that can really end up burning you when it comes to discussions with investors or with banks down the line. Um, the other concern is the compliance officers are expensive. Uh, they're difficult to, to maintain. Um, and it's really, you know, when do you hire that right compliance support? So doing it in-house has you know, some benefits of potentially being cheaper, uh, but you, you get what you pay for. Um, the outsourced compliance support is what we see a lot of fintechs go for with a combination of either an outsource, what they call a fractional chief compliance officer, or um, outsourced work either through bringing in external systems and data to bringing in external staff to help with a lot of the day-to-day -day operations. So that would be at least one thing I'd recommend is get at least your infrastructure set up for you on, on the outset. And that's, that's kind of one of the things that Digiply really focuses on is, yes, we can help you set up your infrastructure. We can give you the systems and tools and data you need, but really you know, where we are, I guess, setting ourselves apart is we like to partner with people from a, a long-term perspective. So it's great. You can just give them a system, uh, but then you know, the, you've got to run the system. Um, so we, we try to bundle that with, with outsourced support to, to run these systems for and with the fintechs. At the top of the call, Jeff, you mentioned uh, Digitalize onboarding as a service offering. And I wonder if you might be able to walk us through that uh, from the point of view of the customer, the new account holder, and what their journey looks like and where you all come in. Sure. Well, if we do it right, the customer is not going to know we exist. So we'll sit you know, completely behind the infrastructure of the fintech. Um, but from a customer coming in, they would, in any relationship, provide a lot of information, name, address, date of birth. That gets ingested into our platform. We would take that. We would run all the different screens. We would run all the scans and the checks. We would verify their identity. We would risk rank them to determine whether they're a riskier customer. If so, we would you know, bring in additional data to make sure we understood who they were and how they're working. Um, and some percentage of customers are always going to be flagged as potential issues or problems. And we have our analysts who really just take that first look at what's happening with this particular account. How can we fix it? How can we resolve it? Can we get this account open without having to bother the FinTech 
because it's a minor issue that we can we can address. And that's really, I would say, where this service component comes into it. It's really bundling together that day-to-day support um, to augment what we can deliver from a technical or software application perspective. Jeff, tell me, what's the number one thing people should know about DigiPly and what they should expect to see in DigiPly in 2022? Sure. So we deliver anti-money laundering products and services that are designed by industry experts and specifically designed to help fintechs scale quickly and compliantly and avoid potential headaches and mistakes. And in 2022, we'll really be continuing to build out our product line, ingest new data, automate new aspects, and find other ways that we can streamline the anti-money laundering infrastructure we provide to fintechs. Thanks so much, Jeff, for the conversation. Thank you for having me, Tim. Enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us today. And remember that you can join our LinkedIn group by searching FSI, Financial Services Innovators, and also subscribe to our podcast by doing the same.